0: Good morning, everybody. It is great to be here today with you. What an awesome day to come together to worship our God. This morning, I have the privilege of studying with you from Hebrews chapter 1. So we're going to start out by reading through the whole chapter together. It's only 14 verses. So if you'd like to get out your Bibles with me, I'm just going to be reading from mine, not up on the screen at this point. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, "...who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth... And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will fold them up. And they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So this is the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, and the reason I started here with this study is I was wanting to cover some things later in the book of Hebrews, and as I tried to back up and gain context for those comments, for those words that were written, I kept backing up further and further to get better context because it all builds so well. And so I said, why don't I just start at the first chapter, and I'll start working through the book of Hebrews uh, from this point the next few times I speak. So Hebrews chapter 1, a quick little um, introduction to it. It was written to Christians who were formerly Jews. So Hebrews are are Jews. That's the same thing, one and the same. Uh, And so he's writing to Christians who used to be Jews. And these people are facing some difficulties, uh, maybe with the length of time that has gone past after their conversion. Maybe they're wanting to drift back into Judaism. Because, I mean, think about it. That is their comfort zone. If you came from a system where your whole culture, your whole nation is built around the Judaic system, then it was hard for them to leave and even once they were converted, it was easier to to go back to where they had always known and so the writer of Hebrews uh, we don't know who it is. the first verse starts out by saying God and and so God is 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 the is the uh, in, in, in spiders, inspires these words, but we don't know necessarily who wrote them. And that's not important because this is God's word and he's instructing these Jews to keep focusing on Jesus. And this first chapter is all about that as we read. It is lifting up Jesus. It is magnifying Jesus so that they can see that, hey, when you walk away from Jesus, if you are feeling like you, you're just going to kind of Go back to whatever you used to do and serve God the way you were trying to serve God. He's saying you can't just walk away from this man, Jesus, because he is so much more than a man and he's so much greater than even an angel. And we'll talk about that in more in a little bit. So one of the overarching things I want us to keep in mind as we go through the book of Hebrews uh, in teaching, we call these enduring understandings that we want you know the audience to leave with is that we must always be ready To change because God has called us to change despite any discomfort we might face. And that change is based on one, God's will. So number one, we follow God's will and we do what will be best for the growth of his people. Now that applies personally and it applies as a church today that we must first follow God's will no matter if it makes us uncomfortable and we must do what's best for the congregation within that um, no matter how uncomfortable it may make us and going back to the things we used to do. And throughout the book of Hebrews, since this is written to Jews who knew the Old Testament, there's going to be a lot of Old Testament Testament references. So let's begin with verse 1. We're going to walk through these verses. And I'll spend more time at the beginning, but uh, we'll speed up as we uh, work toward the second half. So verse 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, to the fathers by the prophets so it's already established for these people they're on common ground they both they all believe in god and they believe together that god has spoken to their forefathers this is already established ground he didn't need to recover this so it's important that whenever we teach we understand our audience as i've gone through the teaching credential that's one of the most important things they teach us is know your audience know where they're at And so since they already believe in God, they know that God has spoken to them. He's alluding to this, and he mentions these various ways. God in the Old Testament spoke to his people in some very interesting and even strange ways. In Exodus chapter 3, he spoke to Moses by a burning bush. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So let's keep that in mind as we remember the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. So Moses was spoken to through an angel. That's going to be important later. So it's from the midst of a burning bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush does not burn. I tried to find a real-life picture of someone burning a bush so it would be more, I don't know, what we might see. But obviously, uh, I couldn't find a picture of a bush that was not consumed when it was being burned. So if you burn a bush, it's going to have black smoke. It's going to have the, 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 the reaction that's created will create things that are part of the, bur- the bush being burned up. It must have had some foliage on it still. I don't know. But God has spoken in some strange ways. Verse 4, So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look... God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. So God has spoken to uh, to his people through a burning bush. He spoke to Elijah by a still, small voice. In 1 Kings chapter 19, it says, Then he said, this being God, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. So, so Elisha is standing on this mountain. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. Can you imagine seeing that? But the Lord was not in the wind. It's interesting. And after the wind, an earthquake. So, so then came this, you had this strong wind that was ripping apart rocks. And you have an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. He spoke to Elijah through this still, small voice. Verse 13 goes on to say, So it was when Elisha heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and and said, What are you doing here, Elisha? So another fascinating circumstance they would have remembered thinking back on the strange and mysterious ways God had spoken to his people. And a few more. In Isaiah chapter 6, he spoke to Isaiah by a heavenly vision. We read that last week uh, in our, uh, during the sermon. He spoke to Hosea by his family crisis that's really strange. God has Hosea marry a prostitute, and then he creates a picture to show God's people. This is what I see when you marry, come to marry me as your God and to follow me. And then you always turn back and you go back to your prostitution. That's a strange situation, but it's one of those various ways uh, they could have remembered. And he spoke to Amos by a basket of fruit in Amos chapter 8, verse 1. So when we get to Hebrews... There's various ways God has spoken to his people. From the fathers, to the fathers, by the prophets. But in verse 2, he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. God, through a basket of fruit, through a burning bush, through a whirlwind, or through a still small voice. All these things might have been interesting, mysterious, and reflections on God's power and ability. The greatest in power. The greatest in How personal this communication is, is the method of delivering his word by his son. Now, he was not just the spoken word bringing the message, he was the word, and so he lived that word. And God spoke to us by Jesus' actions, and he spoke to us by Jesus' words themselves. And this is in these last days. This is in the time where we are. This is in the messianic age in which Jesus has come, he has died, he has risen again. And now Jesus can come back to receive his own at any point. It may be a long age, but this is the time, these last days that we are in now. And so he's going on next to say he's going to give a sevenfold description, <clears throat> description of the son. I don't know if seven was intended to be one of God's, another place where he had his, his favorite, his, uh, his special number of seven for completeness. But there's seven things here. It's going to describe Jesus as the heir of all things. It's going to describe him as as the maker of the worlds. It's going to describe him as the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, the upholder of all things, the purger of sins, and the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's get into those. So in verse 2, it says, Whom he has appointed heir of all things, being Jesus. So as he's starting to introduce Jesus and to lift up Jesus to these Hebrews, this is an opening line of all opening lines. He is the heir of everything. So he's not just a common man that you can leave. Through whom also he made the worlds. So this word worlds does not just mean the physical earth that we live on or the physical planets that are around us. It actually comes from the Greek uh, aeon or something. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's where we get our word eons. He didn't just make the physical space. He made the time. He made the ages. He made all the dimensions that we live in. And he's saying through, who, through this man, Jesus, through this creator, Jesus, he made the ages This is similar in John chapter 1 verse 1 that we read where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So this is not unique to Hebrews, but this Hebrew writer is trying to show them the the magnitude of Jesus, and to show them that he's not just, he's not a secondary figure. He's not someone they can just walk past. He is this man that, he is the creative force that they have known from the beginning. Verse 3, he goes on to say, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, so when it says that Jesus is the, the brightness of his glory, now it comes from a word, uh, I believe it's, it is in Greek, but it basically means it's the radiance that comes from a light source. So if you have a light source, like a light bulb, or even like our solar sun, you have the light source itself, and then you have the radiance that comes out from it. You have the, the rays of the sun. You have the light coming from a flashlight. And he's saying that That the radiance coming from the light of God is Jesus himself. And that's important to note because your light source has no use if it's trapped within itself. If you have a flashlight with a covered end, that light does no good for anyone who's trying to use it. Jesus is the radiance that comes from the Father and he reaches us. And when reading this, I was thinking about uh, Isaiah Where it talks about Jesus being the arm of the Lord. It does no good for us to have a great God up in heaven. To have a great God who created us. If he stepped away and did not have a way of reaching us. And Isaiah describes Jesus as the arm of the Lord. The arm that reaches down to mankind and gives man access to God and his plan. That's the radiance. It's the radiance that makes it to us so that we can experience it and to know him going on verse three it says who being so finishes off by saying and upholding all things by the word of his power i missed the express image the express image he's basically saying he's an exact replica you might say so he's not just like he's not like a knockoff version of, of the godhead Jesus is the express image. If you could took a stamp and you stamped it, you see the exact image that was on the stamp. Jesus is, is spiritually the exact image of God. Okay, then it says, Upholding all things by the word of his power. So I don't know if the writer was intending to bring in Greek mythology here. I don't have any knowledge of that. But in Greek mythology, there was, uh, they had this, this titan god named Atlas. And uh, if you've heard of the Atlas, I think it's the weightlifting competitions, that's where they get this idea of one who holds up the world. Atlas was tasked with holding up the earth for forever and never. He was the one who would physically stand there and hold the earth above him to keep it suspended in the solar system. And it's almost almost a mockery of these Greek gods that you have uh, this this mythical god, uh, Atlas, who supposedly would hold up the earth. But when speaking of Jesus, he upholds all things by just his word, by just the word that that spoke creation into into existence, by the word that gives us life. He upholds all of that. He upholds us in, in the solar system. You might say he is what's giving us gravity. He is, like Chris said last week, holding all things together, Making everything sustain and survive. And actually, that word upholding is better probably uh, translated as maintained or sustained. He's not just physically holding us up. He is maintaining and sustaining all the time. His very creation. Now, this reminded me of Colossians chapter 1 verse 17. Where it says, And he, being Jesus, is before all things. And in him all things consist. That word consist, if you look up in the definition, uh, in the concordance, one of the secondary meanings it has is held together. Now, this next slide I'm going to show you, I don't know if this was um, something that God intended to be focused on in that definition of consist being maintained and sustained and held together or if this is, is just another way that creation points to God. But this is... I'm going to show you a picture under a microscope of a thing called laminin. This here is a, is a protein that exists in our body, in our cells, called laminin. And laminin is a cell adhesion molecule. It's basically like rebar for our body. So uh, if, if you have concrete without rebar your concrete is going to crack and it's gonna crumble without the support the, the tensile strength of the rebar, the iron, going through the material. And concrete would crumble and crack and so we make concrete with rebar in it. In our bodies laminin acts as a cell adhesion molecule holding all of our cells together. And this is what it looks like under a microscope. That is an actual image of laminin. And this is From some scientific website, you can go to the Chinese entities' websites. They have the same picture. And what you see, what I see, is one long leg and three short legs that resembles a cross to me. The beauty of this, whether God intended this or not, is that our bodies are literally held together by a protein that is in the shape of a cross. You take that for what it's worth. I don't think that's an accident. I don't believe there are accidents when it comes to things like this. But without this, our bodies would literally be a puddle of cells on the floor. And it goes from the smallest things like this. If you look out into the biggest, and the furthest reaches of our universe, this is a sight you'll see. This is in the middle of a whirlpool galaxy seen from the Hubble telescope. This is from NASA's website. In the middle of a whirlpool galaxy, far, far away, in the middle of a black hole, they zoomed in far enough and they see an image that looks like a cross. In him, all things consist. In him, everything was created that was created. And whether we go down to the smallest molecular level of our bodies or into the greatest reaches of our universe, I can see... One long leg and three short legs, it looks to me either like a man or like a cross. Glory and praise to our God and to the Son. Going on in verse 3. Upholding all things by the word of His power. When He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. The word purge means to get rid of someone or something of an unwanted quality, condition, or feeling. We all have those unwanted qualities in ourselves. We, we have things that, that we don't like about ourselves. And the greatest thing that we have that we could want to get rid of is our own sin. Our own messed upness. And Jesus was the only way for us to get that out. We've got that unwanted quality, those unwanted stains in our life. And Jesus purged that out. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That right hand is significant, especially in those days, because the right hand was not just a place for him to stand as a servant. A right hand was was an equal. He was right there with you. That's not where the servant stood. That is where the one with authority and power stood. At the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4. Having become so much better than the angel's, As he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So Jesus has been described as the one who's had the power from the beginning. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. Jesus has always been there and had that power. He is eternal. But it also says that he has become so much better than the angels. (coughs) Jesus had to come to earth and he proved himself. So he is great in. In the innate qualities that he has. He is great. Which it says here. He is by inheritance attained a more excellent name than they. So an inheritance from the father. He has been given that by the father. So not only is he, does he have it in himself. He is also validated by God the father himself. Which is what these Jews would have needed right. This is, this is God we know. So who is this man here. He says God himself. Has given him an inheritance and a more excellent name than that. And he's going to talk more about God's blessing on, on Jesus in a little bit. And he has also, you might say, earned his stripes. Both physically, or both literally and metaphorically on earth. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 it says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. And bringing many sons to glory. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He is innately great, but he also became great. He proved himself. And has obtained that excellent name and done exactly what we are doing here. And he is still the Almighty, worthy God. <clears throat> now, in verse 4, it says, He has become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So that angels is an important detail he's including. So why all of a sudden are we talking about angels in light of how great Jesus is? So as I understand from passages like Colossians 2 verse 18 and Galatians 1 verse 8, the early church had a little bit of trouble with this idea of angels. They started to seem to kind of worship angels. And maybe they were even thinking Jesus himself is an angel. And this passage is one of many that's trying to combat that idea. He is saying that he has become so much better than the angels. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about angels. When we in modern culture think about angels, we have this hallmark mentality a lot of times. We have uh, Hollywood maybe in our heads of these cute little floating creatures. But that is, it couldn't be farther from the truth of what angels are in the Bible. So you might, you might have seen some statues like this. Maybe you even have some supposed to be cute little baby angels in your yard. But our, our God has, has helpers, has ministering spirits that are actually quite different from these pictures. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 15 and 16, we hear where these angels are involved. So whatever picture you have in your head... Create a blank slate now, we'll clear the clutter, and let's create an image of an angel based on what we read here. It says, and God sent an angel, an angel, one angel, to Jerusalem to destroy it. Jerusalem was one of the great cities, and it says, God sent one angel to destroy the entire city. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was sorry over the calamity. And said to the destroying angel, It is enough. Now relax your hand. So we note there that God is in control of these angels. They are under his power. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Then David lifted up his eyes, saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, with his drawn sword in his hand and stretched out over Jerusalem. I can't imagine what that looked like. There's different times in the Bible where God God chooses to let his people see physical forms of his power. And this is one of those. In the Old Testament, we see where God had blinded their eyes and then he'd opened their eyes. Like when uh, Balaam was riding the donkey, the donkey stopped and he kept getting further and further away until God finally showed Balaam what was in front of him. And it was an angel ready to to wag his head off. God, every once in a while, showed physical manifestations of his power, even though they were not physical beings. Angels are not uh, these finely sculpted human forms. God has given them physical forms at times. And what it made Jesus do, or what it made David do, so it says, Then David and the elders, covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. Angels are the servants of God who have at times. Had to be murderous, destructive, scary forces for God. That is quite different than this picture. Now, why is that important? Well, let's talk a little bit more. Let's let's build this picture even more of an angel. So, Revelation 10, verse 1 through 4. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. So, this is a strong one. Clothed with a cloud. So, he's clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head. And his face was like the sun. And his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which is open. So you have this seemingly massive, powerful being with a little book in his hand open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. That is an extraordinary, scary, awesome image. Many times when the Bible describes spiritual beings, it describes what they are like, not what they look like. So when we think spiritual beings, think what they are like, not what they look like. And he was like this incredible being that is much different than a fluffy little baby. So the reason for doing this is that these Jews knew that the angels were great. They, had, they didn't have a Hollywood hallmark version of an angel. They knew the destructive, the great, the ministering power of angels and their ability to serve God and his judgments. And angels had a role in delivering God's word. They revered the old law. They revealed the Old Testament and all the words that were sent to the prophets. And so they really had a pretty decent view of angels in that, man, they are great. They were. But he's talking about angels to show them that they are not even near the same level as Jesus. Because as he's going to say in a minute, these guys just flock around and worship Jesus. You think angels are great? Verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He never said that to any angels. Angels are described in Job as the sons of God, lowercase s. Meaning that, you know, they're they're God's offspring. God created them. We can be sons of God. We can be God's people. But I will be to you a father and I will be to you a son. He hasn't said that to any angels or to us. Jesus is his only begotten son. Verse 6, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, being Jesus, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. The angels don't worship. Jesus doesn't worship among the angels as kind of one of these angels before God. Jesus is part of the Godhead that they come to worship. Jesus is not God the Father. Jesus is not God the Spirit. He is God the Son. And he is worthy of the praise of the angels and he's worthy of our praise. And Psalm 104 is where we get this. These are Old Testament passages he's quoting here when he's talking about let all the angels of God worship him. When you go to uh, the, the references, if when you're studying your Bible, you're wondering where these italicized quotes are coming from, there's usually a key at the bottom where it has the verse number and a letter next to it, and it tells you where it's from. This one's from Psalm 104. Psalm 104 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Who cover yourself with light as with a garment. Who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. Who makes the clouds his chariot. Who walks on the wings of the wind. Who makes his angels spirits. His ministers a flame of fire. When I read the Old Testament... I don't think about this as being Jesus. I'm just thinking, you know, maybe God the Father. But Hebrews tells us that was talking about Jesus. It says, uh, of the Son, He says all these things. Verse 4, who make His angels spirits, His ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. Do we see Jesus in this light? As this great, eternal, creative force, the Hebrews did not see him that way. They thought he was someone lower that they could leave and not worry about. He is great. And if you want to read the rest of the Psalm 104, I'm not going to do that now, but it continues to compound the greatness of our God. And we learn that it's about Jesus. Revelation 5 tells us this, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one was in heaven or on earth or under the earth able to open the scroll. So there was salvation that could not be administered, could not be opened. God's gift to his people. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Or to look at it. Verse 4. So I wept. This is John the Revelator writing this. I wept because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. There was this bleak picture, and then, then I looked later in the chapter, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands So that one angel that was able to wipe out Jerusalem, he was standing above Jerusalem ready to knock him out. There was 10,000 times 10,000 of angels surrounding, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. To these Hebrews, to us, as we see the greatness of a physically manifested powerful angel, These bow down in the thousands and thousands to worship Jesus. Great is his name. Going on in Hebrews 1, verse 8. But to the Son, he says, so he's not speaking to angels, he's speaking to the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. This is another psalm reference to Psalm 97. They weren't connecting these psalms to Jesus, and he was helping them do that. Verse 10, only a couple more verses. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not fail. And it's not like, you know, when Jesus set up his covenant, they were converted to him. It's not like he kind of degraded and they had, to, uh, they had to depreciate him over time because he started to get less and less. It says, no, you will fold them up. You and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail. You're not going to get weaker. Just because we in the early church have now been around for a few years, maybe 30 years right after writing this, After 30 years, he hasn't come, and so he's kind of getting weaker. We can't really know if we trust him. Well, us here at Plans Road, 2,000 years later, he is the same. He is being worshipped, and he is great, and he has the power we've read about, and he will not fail. He is still sitting in heaven with the same power that he always has had. He has been merciful to let us our thing for a while to let us decide what we're going to do he is there and he is here with us today verse 13 but to which of the angels has he ever said sit at my right hand till i make your enemies your footstool till i make all these people who are fighting against you just something you kick your feet up on he never said that to any angels are they not are these angels not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. So this brings our chapter to the close. I love this last line. He's talked about angels to give them a gauge for how great Jesus is. He's talked about the power, or we've talked about the power that he has as God. Now, all of these things that are so much greater than you, all of these things that could wipe you out with a snap of the finger, do you not see that all these are just sent to minister to you and? Towards salvation? I can barely lift, lift a couple hundred pounds. There's not much I can do. Especially compared to all these things. But all these great forces are working towards giving me salvation. And toward giving every one of you salvation. Do you feel important this morning? Do you feel valuable this morning? You should. All these great forces are working towards providing help for those who will inherit salvation through administering the word that we're reading and our God be with us all the time. I hope this morning that we see the greatness of Jesus. And I hope we see today that we are valuable to Him. And that He is the same God who has always been here and who is with us this morning as we worship Him. As Chris said last week, how great is our God.